25 says, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we meet two men in this text. The first is an expert in the law. The second is a teacher called Jesus. Now the bloke who is an expert in the law is a religious lawyer. This bloke would have memorised most, if not all, of the Old Testament. You would not want to take this guy on in Bible trivia. In you know, the Bible trivial pursuit, has anyone played that? We've all played that. We're Christians, aren't we? Don't we have one of those in the cupboard? You would want to take this guy on. He'd know all the answers. In Jesus' day, the Old Testament lawyer were very, lawyers were very intelligent. They were very sharp. And the lawyer asks Jesus a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So why does he ask this important question? The Bible tells us in verse 25, he asks this question, what to do? To test Jesus. Up until this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been travelling around Palestine, healing people, raising people from the dead, performing a whole bunch of amazing miracles and teaching profound truths. All this was very challenging to the religious establishment. Their religious establishment had their rules, they had their regulations, they had their ways of doing things. And this preacher from Galilee named Jesus comes, or comes along and his whole ministry is a massive threat to this religious establishment. So one of the narrative points throughout the Gospel of Luke is that the religious establishment seeks to test Jesus, and here it is again in our text, part of this uh, narrative point. Their goal is ultimately to trap Jesus, bring him to trial and prove that he's a fraud. And that's the context of this story, to test and to trap Jesus. The trap is set with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, despite the lawyer's motive, it's actually a very good question. It's a question that I hope you and I would wrestle with often. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The big questions of life are very important. Questions about heaven, questions about hell. Jesus preached and spoke often about the truth of eternal life. And there's this expert of religious law who believes in eternal life, but he wants to know what he can do to get there, to obtain it, to enjoy it. So he lets... Uh, he, so, so let's look at Jesus' response to that question. Verse 26 says, What is written in the law? He replies, How do you read it? Now this is a very clever, responsive question to, the, to this expert in the law. You're an expert in religious law, Jesus says, so you tell me. And the lawyer is faced with two options. He could start reading out the Torah... Or alternatively, he could summarise or boil down the Old Testament to a couple of commands. And that's what he does. He takes option two. He summarises and gets to the very heart of the matter. Verse 27, he answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, it's brilliant how Jesus gets him to respond this way. 
So why did Jesus do it that way? I think because it would have been very easy for this expert in the law to produce a whole lot of accomplished lists, a whole lot of ticked boxes, a whole lot of religious achievements. And this reflects back on us too, because if, if you lay out all the religious laws and if you lay out all the requirements, you and I might be able to start ticking off a few boxes and then we might start to think, well, we're doing pretty well, we're doing a great job at this religious game. But here's the point, where you and I look underneath the Old Testament law and get below the surface and we get to the heart of the, the Old Testament law, we begin to see how big this command to love God and to love neighbour really is. It requires a new way of thinking. It requires a new way of life. And Jesus is demanding from this lawyer the essence of the Old Testament law so that he might weigh himself against it. So let's consider this for our own lives this morning. Firstly, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and all of your mind? Is your whole person completely focused on God? Archbishop William Temple, a good Mancunian, he was the Bishop of Manchester, then he became the Archbishop of York, good Mancunian man. He said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. What does that mean? William Temple is saying, when there's no distraction in your life, when you have time to let your mind wander, where does it go? Does it go to the excellencies of God? Do you begin to naturally think about the glory of God and his salvation? Or does it go somewhere else? Career, sport, sex, family, money. Where does it go? William Temple says, where your mind goes, that's your religion, that's your God. The second command, love your neighbour as yourself. Now let's think about that. Do you think of the needs of your neighbour with the same passion and with the same purpose that you meet your own needs? When you're hungry, you eat something. Yes. When you're cold, you put on appropriate clothing and you find shelter. When we're lonely, we gather with friends and we look to be accepted. The big question is, do we seek those things with equal passion and purpose for our neighbour? How many have nature strips? When you mow them, where do you, where do you mow your nature strip to? Fence line to fence line? The city council does mine. Huh? Do you mow your neighbours? Yes. You just mow yours? No, they mow mine. Oh, they, oh, so they're a good neighbour to you. Oh, yeah, that's excellent, isn't it? So you mow defence line to fence line if you've got one and if you have to. Why not mow your neighbours? Why not mow your neighbours? And if that, why not mow the neighbour after that? 
And they went on that side. Why don't you move the whole street? Come on, Jesus. Let's press this a little further. When someone succeeds ahead of us, when someone succeeds ahead of us, do you rejoice in their success as if it were you? Do you love them in that way? Do you really love your neighbour as yourself? We may have those sacrificial moments of service, but if we look at our story, would it be about others or would it be about ourselves and our, our stuff? The Lord commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. The lawyer knows this. In verse 28, Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. If you keep the Old Testament law perfectly, if you keep the Old Testament law continually, unfailingly, joyfully, you will live. If, however, you keep the Old Testament commandments imperfectly, inconsistently, you're going to need a saviour. Now, I'm sure at this point in the conversation, the lawyer and everyone else who's listening in perhaps even us, we've begun to feel a little bit uncomfortable because we thought we had, or we thought we were good people. But next to the supremacy, next to the greatness of God's love, we begin to start to feel a little small. And I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've messed up a lot of the time, all the time. I know I don't, I don't, I, I don't love God the way the Old Testament commands uh, us to do that or commands me to do it. I know I don't love my neighbour as myself and that can be very uncomfortable. A command like this one reminds us of our fallenness. So we have two options. One is a pathway of humility and confession that says next to this command of love I fall short, I need a saviour, I need help. Well, the other option is you can begin to challenge Jesus. I've seen church people do this, people that have gone to church uh, all of their lives and they challenge Jesus by saying they're basically a good person, they haven't killed anyone and basically I'm better than that one over there. So which option do you think the expert of the law is going to turn to? Let's have a look, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? The religious lawyer at this point realises he's not quite stacking up. And his worldview says he must stack up. He must be able to tick the boxes. If he's uh, to inherit, if he's to receive, if he's to gain eternal life. But at this point, it's not looking good for this man. This religious expert not only has challenged Jesus, but he wants to renegotiate the terms of the meaning of neighbour. He's making Jesus, he's asking Jesus to uh, uh, rein it in a little bit, to put some boundaries around this law, to make it achievable, to make the law manageable, to make it a box that this religious man can tick. Because as it stands, the whole thing is far too radical. It's far too radical. Who is my neighbour? 
And so we really want to limit this because it seems overwhelming and that's what the religious lawyer is seeking to do. This bloke has a view of religion that says that I've got to tick a box. And in all of that, you said, Jesus, I can't seem to find the box to tick that tells me who my neighbour is. Is it my family? Is it my wife? Surely it's not the whole of Israel. Where's the box I need to tick, Jesus? Let's ask another question. Why is he pressing Jesus like this? Why does he need this concession? Well, let's have a look at verse 29. It tells us he wanted to justify himself. He realised that something's not right. He wants to make himself look good again. Justify is not a word we commonly use, is it? However, we justify ourselves all the time. Who has ever been pulled over for speeding? Amen? I've got two hands up as well. Amen? Amen? What was, what was the question the police officer asked you? Why? The Victorian police officer asks the same question every time. They're told to ask the question. Is there any reason why you're speeding today? That's what I was asked. And um, when I was asked that question several years ago by the policeman that pulled me over, I racked my brain to find some reason to justify myself because I didn't want to receive the fine. Justifying ourselves. Here's another one. Gossip. Now, come on, we all gossip. Don't look at me like fish in a fishbowl. Like frogs in the rain. But how do we justify it? Well, look, I'm only sharing this with you because I care about it. And I really want you to pray for me. That's code for I'm gossiping and I really want to justify what I'm doing. There's something about us that seeks to protect our identity or who we really want people to think we are. Justification is something that we all do, and at the heart, it's something called pride. It's something called pride. That's what it is. It's something called pride. We have uh, a self-view that is big, and we say that we want to be holy, we want to be righteous, and we want to be perfect in the sight of everyone else and in the sight of God. But we fall short of that. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable when it happens. So we say things and we do things to make ourselves look righteous, to justify ourselves. In religion, it's extreme because the religious worldview is I must be perfect to enter heaven. Goodness is next to godliness. I have to be seen to be good. I have to be seen to be right all the time in a religious context. Therefore, when we stuff up, and we do. We do stuff. It's uncomfortable. And so we put these religious masks on and attempt to justify ourselves. And the lawyer in our story realises the intensity of the situation now. And he begins to put limits on what Jesus is saying. Who is my neighbour? So Jesus replies with a story. Verse 30. A man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho. 
when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the road to Jer from Jerusalem to Jericho had a reputation of being a very dangerous part of town. It's not the place to be walking around by yourself, yet this man is walking around by himself. And some villains come up uh, from behind, perhaps, and start to rough him up, and he falls to the ground, and they beat him with their weapons. He's bleeding, he's in pain, and to add to his shame, they strip him of his clothes, leaving him naked, and they depart. There he's alone. There he is in need of help. And he's thinking and praying, will someone come along? Will someone come to rescue me? And then, out of the corner of his eye, he sees someone. Who is it? Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, this would have been shocking for Jesus' audience to hear this. Priests were held in high regard in, in the ancient Jewish culture. Priests were people who would be expected to do something to help, to rescue. Someone will say, but well, that priest didn't stop because it had to do with religious purity. They can't touch blood. It will make them ceremonially unclean. Perhaps the priest was scared. Maybe the robbers were still hiding in the bushes watching, ready for another victim. Verse 32 says, So too a Levite man came to the place and saw him, but passed by on the other side. A Levite in Jewish culture was a community or a village priest, a pastoral carer. They didn't sacrifice at the temple, but their job was more about pastoral care and social work in villages and communities. So the big question is, are these two blokes hypocrites, saying one thing and then doing another? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Religious people talk a lot about helping others, but when no one's looking, they can easily just walk by. It's one of the things, it's one thing to stand and declare the truth, it's another to live it. And as easy as it would be to cast a judging eye on these two men, the real question is, are we any different? When we see someone in trouble, we wish we could help, but we don't. It seems we live in a day where, where courage and sacrifice are forgotten words. We're often self-absorbed, just walking around our own, running our own race and looking after number one. Some of us are probably thinking, I would never be like the priest. I would never be like the Levite. I would definitely stop and help. The question is, would you? There's another man who enters the stage of the story, and he's, he's referred to as the Samaritan. When we hear Samaritan, we think, here comes the good guy. Here comes the good Samaritan. But actually, in Jesus' times, the word Samaritan was more like a swear word. The Samaritans were a despised and a hated people. They were, they, they were the inbred traitors. And as far as a good Jew was concerned, these people were the offscouring. So the Jewish religious lawyer and the audience listening to Jesus would have probably been totally horrified when Jesus introduces the Samaritan 
as the good guy in this parable. Verse 33, but the Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. In the King James Bible, it says he had compassion on him. So this man saw the need, and his heart was moved to action. Often we might be more moved internally by the situation, but for the most part, it just stops there. But not for this bloke, not for this Samaritan man. He put some effort in, verses 34 to 35. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, pouring on, pouring on oil and wine. When he had put the man in, on his own donkey or animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you of any extra expense you may have. So note the extent of this man's love, the extent of this man's compassion. It's financial. Wine and oil were very expensive items in ancient times. And here he is, coming to someone he doesn't even know, administering first aid and human care. He takes him to a hotel and he pays for that as well. Basically, basically he's leaving his credit card at the, at, at, at the check-in desk. It's not just financial, it's also a commitment of time. We live in a society that's rich yet time poor. And most of us are willing to make a contribution rather than getting involved. But note the Samaritan. It's his money and it's his time. So the Good Samaritan parable shows us that it's about our money and it's about our time. But most importantly, and the bigger revelation this parable shows us, it's about closeness. It's about human contact. It's about human intimacy. This is the juxtaposition and the contrasting theme in this parable. Jesus is contrasting God's story and man-made religion. Note the closeness, note the tenderness as the Samaritan's heart is moved. Note that he's with him and he's involved in the messiness of this, of this man's life. Note the distance of the religious people, the so-called moral people. Note their distance. At no point do we read the Samaritan saying, okay, I'll do this, but we're going to have to work out a payment plan and you need to pay me back. There's no hint of this. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. He took pity on him. This is risky love this morning. It's personal love. It's financial love. It's costly love. That's what makes this story so confronting to our human hearts. Jesus finishes the story and asks the religious leader another question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Notice that the religious expert can't even say the word Samaritan. He says the one. The lawyer, like many of us, wanted to impose limits and boundaries. He wanted a box to tick. He says, who is my neighbour? And Jesus answers the question. The question is not, who is my neighbour? The question is, are you a neighbour? And what does that mean, to be a neighbour? 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. As yourself. Love of God and love of neighbour is not a box that we need to tick. It's not something we need to identify in our lives. Like it's 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 not. It, it is actually the identity of your life and of my life. It's who we are. It's who God is. It's sacrificial. It's generous. It's radical. It's world changing. It's it's a revolution. It's revolutionary. It's that radical that it's a revolution to live this way. So this lawyer, he thought he could earn his way into this eternal life, and here's Jesus showing him the, 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 the craziness of his religious morality, the futility of his religious morality. This love that Jesus holds up to us, it's not predictable. It's not a love that can be packaged. It's unexpected. It's undeserving. It's unconditional. It's limitless, and it's boundless love. So what do we think Jesus is wanting the lawyer to see? Well, Jesus wants the lawyer to see his pride. And for the very first time, Jesus is showing this man, despite what he thinks of himself, that he's fallen short of the central command of the whole Bible. Love God and love neighbour. Jesus' parable holds this radical picture of love and exposes the bankruptcy of this man's heart. So let's go back to the question of our text. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The religious leader wants to know what he can do. Therefore, he seeks to justify himself. But Jesus doesn't play that game. He says, if you're going to try to use religion and morality to save yourself, then you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. With or without pride and religion, all of us, all of us fall short of the glory of God. We must never, we, 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 we will never meet that, that standard. We will never do this perfectly. We will never do this continually, unfailingly. We don't love like this. Who is it in this story that Jesus wants the lawyer to relate to? And who are we supposed to imagine ourselves as? Is it the priest? Is it the Levite? Is it the Samaritan? I actually think that Jesus wants us to see ourselves as the man on the road helpless. Religion did not save us. It passed us by. You and I, we need a saviour. Because no matter how hard we try... We can't tick the box. We can't fulfill the Old Testament law. We need someone to rescue us. We need to give up this game of being proud. We need to give up this game of trying to justify ourselves with our own morality. You and I, we need a saviour because before God, we have nothing. So the great news of this gospel is you have a saviour in Jesus. Morality will not save you. Religion will not save you. It's not about what you can do. It's, not a, it's, it's all about what Jesus has done for you. And on the cross of Calvary, Jesus did everything. So Jesus is the good Samaritan. That's what the story is saying. Jesus is the Samaritan who saw you 
and crossed the road and met you in your place of deepest need. He was the one who was moved with compassion that came to our rescue unconditionally. He came to us with the gift of oil and wine, with the gift of his own life. And there's nothing you and I can do to inherit eternal life. It's a gift. It's given freely. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't manipulate your way into it. And so God is calling us as his church, as his people, to see ourselves like this. To give up on this religious game that we play. To give up trying to justify ourselves and come humbly to the feet of Jesus and say, I can't save myself. I need your finished work on the cross. I need the blood that was poured out to save me. So this morning, Jesus, through the words of this parable, is reaching out to each one of us this morning. And he is calling us humbly, come into his presence and say, I need a saviour. And I am thankful that I have one in you, Jesus. Please pray with me. Lord God, I thank you for everyone in this room, women and men made in your image, whom you love. We thank you, God, that it's no accident that you have brought us here to hear your word. To hear about Jesus, the one who perfectly can continually, joyfully fulfill the law. He is the true good Samaritan who stood in our place on the cross and paid for our sins. And three days later rose to new life, proving to all that he's the saviour of the world, the rescuer. Father God, I pray for those who do not know or do not have a saving relationship with Jesus that they would put their faith in him, even this morning. Father, we don't want to walk out of this place with guilt. We want to walk out in grace. We say thank you for your gospel. We say thank you for the work you have done for us. We pray all of these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.